0: I can't help but look at that space there and remember Sister Teresa Simpson, our good friend, who we lost a few years back, and uh, just, I think we all loved Teresa. If you knew her, if you were here, uh, maybe if you're new, you don't know her, but she was our our sister that sat there, and she just loved Jesus. Amening, hallelujah, sitting on the front row. What more could a preacher want? And uh, the vice-like hugs that she gave, and she was my friend and pretty much on a weekly basis she and I would talk and I would say ninety percent of the time at least the topic or one of the topics of conversation was her death That may sound a little bit weird but she wanted to talk about getting everything this is how I want it to be when I die this is I want what exactly what I want to happen at my funeral service and you know, it may sound a little weird, but when you get to a certain age, it's not weird at all to talk about that. In fact, it's probably healthy and good to make some preparations around that, and, and maybe not even a certain age. Maybe health is declining rapidly or something else. There's another reason that it's good, it's normal, it's right to talk about that. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, really all the Gospels, Jesus talked a lot about his impending death. I mean, chapter after chapter, he was telling his disciples, he was telling his friends about his death. Um, and it was odd because it wasn't like he was old. It wasn't like he had a terminal illness or something. The guy was in his early 30s, in perfect health as far as we know, and he talked about his death all the time. Well, that would be pretty jarring, I think, for his friends his family, but that was nothing compared with what Jesus did. You see, he didn't just talk about his death. He actually described his upcoming death with great detail, with grisly detail. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31, Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must, listen, must suffer many terrible things, must suffer many terrible things, and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. And he talked about this, what, openly with his disciples. Regular topic of conversation. I will suffer many terrible things. I'll be rejected by pretty much everyone who counts in society. I mean, the ones who are going to to really drive this thing are the scribes and the priests, but no leading figure is going to come to my defense. No one is going to speak up for me. I'm going to be murdered. Now, if a good friend of mine started talking like this, I'm pretty sure I would have done what Peter did after this in Mark chapter 8. Peter took Jesus aside and said, Stop talking like this. I don't want to hear any more of this. Of course, Jesus rebuked him. But I mean, I would have done the same thing Peter did. I mean, if a friend of mine said, hey, Gordon, this business trip we're taking to Omaha next week, no joke, I'm going to be murdered. Here's the group that's going to do it. Here's how I would say, A, I don't want to hear you talking about that. If you are joking, that is bad form, bad taste. B, if you're not joking... Let's not go to Omaha, right? But nobody was stopping Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem. This is going to happen. Next chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 12. The scriptures, Jesus said, the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt. Next chapter. Listen to the chilling, specific predictions. Mark 10, 33 and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem. This is our business trip, boys. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him. And flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to start talking about death. It's, it's another thing for them to get so, so specific. So into the details of it. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Chapter 12, he tells them a story. It is a story on the surface about a vineyard, a vineyard owner and the renters of this man's vineyard. See, he's gone off on a trip, but really it's about Jesus. And once again, he is talking about his death. The owner goes off on this long trip far from home, won't be back for a long time the renters, the tenants, decide, let's try not paying rent this month. Let's try not paying rent forever. What does the owner do? Well, the owner wants to be paid. He sends servants, collectors. The renters say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not paying. And then they begin abusing these collectors verbally and physically, Finally, the owner of that vineyard sends his son. We'll pick the story up here. Mark 12, 6 to 8. He had one left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to, to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, threw his body outside the vineyard. Let's bow our heads, let's pray together before we go any further this morning. Lord God, we humbly gather in this place on this cool, crisp morning to hear your voice, to worship you, to offer you our lives. Lord, I feel profoundly unworthy to preach this message You know me, I'm a sinner, a broken down, selfish, prideful wretch. I'm unworthy, and I ask that in spite of that, you use me and you use this message this morning. Lord Jesus, everything you predicted, it happened just like you said it would. You did go to Jerusalem, you were rejected, you were tortured you were mocked and taunted and you were put to death put to death for my sins for our sins and we just can't even begin to grasp the extent of your love the suffering and the death that prove that love beyond any doubt and father god the pain of separation that you experience. We're just in awe of that sacrifice. Spirit, we ask you right now to speak through the reality of the cross and speak through these ancient words to each one of us, to each heart, to each spirit, to each mind. This is our prayer. Amen. So you know we've got four accounts of the cross, all of the Gospels cover this story. This is the center of the New Testament, really the center of Scripture. We're going to focus on Mark. So if there's some details that you've heard in other Gospels, we're really going to try to stick with Mark's account this morning. Um, And when we left off last week, Jesus had been arrested, and Jesus was essentially being railroaded, being rushed through this charade of a trial in the middle of the night at the high priest's home, And all of this, as we know, is being orchestrated by enemies hell-bent on seeing Jesus taken out. They want him dead. They were threatened by his popularity. They envied his power. They were fearful of losing their own positions and their own prestige in the community to this young upstart rabbi from Nazareth. And that night, as we saw last week, the disciples abandoned Jesus, disappeared into the night. Yeah, Peter followed, but Peter followed at, at a safe distance. And even Peter, hit with casual accusations around the campfire, accusations from total strangers. Peter the Rock, he denied Jesus, he disavowed Jesus, he disassociated from Jesus in the strongest, in the strongest terms that he could come up with. The Jewish high council, early in the morning, they took, they took Jesus off to the Roman governor, a man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. They, of course, they had no legal authority to administer a death penalty. They needed the Romans for that, so off to Pilate, off to Pilate. Now, their charge in the Jewish high council, their charge was blasphemy, that that Jesus had claimed to be God, and so they thought he had to die. But the Romans, you know, they're not going to execute someone for for breaking a religious law of the Jews, so they needed to come up with something else. They needed to to invent some other crimes to accuse him of something that would interest the Romans. Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, descendant of David. So let's do this. Let's say... King of the Jews, rival king. He's opposing Caesar. This is insurrection. The Romans hate that. And oh yeah, just to be safe, they threw in all sorts of charges and accusations, right? The Jewish, they're just throwing stuff against the wall, hoping something will stick, as Mark tells us in Mark fifteen three, The leading priests kept accusing him... Of many crimes, and so Pilate—he's hey, a smart guy. He can see that this young rabbi—he hasn't done anything remotely worthy of death by crucifixion—and so he offered to release a prisoner, kind of a goodwill gesture for Passover. But the crowds would have none of it. Barabbas, they shouted. This criminal, this insurrectionist named Barabbas was one of the prisoners. Release Barabbas, they wanted. And so he was released. What to do with Jesus? The crowd, handpicked by the religious leaders, they're shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate, however, maintained that he had not committed any actual crimes and so hoping to appease the angry mob Pilate sent Jesus off to be flogged with a lead-tipped scourge it was brutal his back was shredded he was covered in blood terribly disfigured perhaps this would satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd but no They insisted on crucifixion. And fearful of some revolt, some rioting, in Judea, the area under his charge, Pilate turned him over to the Roman garrison to be crucified. Now, before they took him to the cross, the soldiers wanted to have a little fun with this king, the king of the Jews, so in front of the whole garrison, probably five hundred or so Roman soldiers, they adorned him with this purple robe, they fashioned a, a, a crown for him out of thorn branches, they bowed before him, they laughed, they mocked, they carried on offering fake worship to this to this king. They began to hit him on the head with, with a wooden bat, they spat on him again. They dropped to their knees, worshiping him, adoring him, and once they had run out of laughs, they got tired of the jokes. They took off the kingly costume and they led him off to be crucified. And Jesus, just battered, physically now unable to carry that heavy wooden crossbeam. The soldiers enlist Simon from the North African city of Cyrene to. T- out of the crowd to assist, to carry that cross for Jesus. At Calvary, the soldiers drove spikes through his hands and feet to nail him to the wooden cross, and then they lifted up their prisoner. They lifted up the king of glory to experience the cruelest death that they could imagine, crucifixion. Now, actually, the Persians, uh, King Darius I had invented crucifixion, but the Romans had perfected crucifixion. So the Lord, suspended on that cross, watched. He watched from the cross as soldiers, the same ones who had impaled with spikes His hands and feet onto the cross as they threw dice to see who would get His his garments, His clothing, His stuff. A sign over His head... Uh, Contained the official charge there, king of the Jews. People milled around below, hurling insults, mocking him. And Mark relates that the two criminals who were crucified beside him, they wanted to get in on the fun as well, and they mocked as well. At noon, as if mourning the death of her creator, creation went dark. An ebony curtain fell over the land for three hours. Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quotation from Psalm 22, which contains great detail about this very moment, about the crucifixion scene. Jesus uttered a loud cry and took a final breath and died. A Roman officer who had been watching all of this said, surely this was the Son of God. Well, we can call all of this an injustice, but we cannot claim that any of this was a surprise to God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This was predicted in vivid detail by Jesus and in a number of Old Testament prophecies. It wasn't that the Savior's plan had gone horribly wrong. This was the Savior's plan. But why? How could such violence, how could such injustice be part of a holy God's plan? Why did the cross have to happen? Well, you know in life, there are problems and there are ailments that can only be fixed with one very specific remedy. Not just anything will work. Um, like cough medicine isn't going to fix A malignant tumor. Cutting up your credit cards will not erase debt that you have already accrued. Changing the oil in your car is not going to fix a flat tire. If you need your roof fixed, you don't call an oncologist. If you have cancer, you don't call the roofer. A genuine fix needs to actually address the particular problem that needs to be solved. For some sicknesses, as much as we might want it to be otherwise, there's only one cure. There's only one remedy. Sometimes there is only one fix. And we, all of us, humanity, you and I, we are sinners. That is our singular sickness that we all share the sickness of sin. We're broken. We're ruined. We're wrecked by sin. We're separated from the God who made us, who loves us. And our sin separates us from one another. Our relationships with people have been damaged. Lives have been ruined. I mean, the results are everywhere. Just look around. And the bad news is pretty bad. I mean, the diagnosis for this, the diagnosis is grim. We are lost. We are broken. We are slaves of sin. We are dead to sin. And that sin has to be dealt with. That debt cannot go unpaid. The crimes must be punished. Justice requires that. And promising to try harder to do better next time that doesn't repair the damage that's been done and that doesn't undo the crimes that have been committed the fix the only fix is the cross a writer once penned these words a rescuer must ransom the slaves a kindred brother must pay the family debt a substitute must shoulder the guilt. There is no other way of escape. Now, one word for this in the Bible is this word atonement. Atonement. Jesus' atonement means that he paid the debt that we owed. He rescued us. He brought us back home. He brought us back to the Father's house. On that old rugged cross, God absorbed all of the evil and sin and injustice of the world for us. And our sins, they have been atoned for. They have been washed away. The slate has been wiped clean because of this sacrifice, because of this atonement. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. From the bad news to the good news, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this: For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, if you would read that with me, let's, let's read this together. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. That's the cross. That's the cross. Paul picks this up in Colossians 2, 13, 15. Just listen. He says, God made you alive with Christ." He forgave us all our sins, amen, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, it stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We're not ashamed of the cross. It was his greatest triumph. Oh, Easter's amazing. But he's shamed all of darkness, dominions of hell on the cross. So let's finish by talking about why the cross had to happen. And a good place to start is just to acknowledge it had to happen. Check this out on your outline. It had to happen. Jesus went to the cross deliberately. It had to happen. He went deliberately deliberately. The Gospels make it clear that he could have avoided the cross either by his words or by his actions. He could have protested his innocence to Pilate. Pilate was astonished that he wouldn't raise a word in his own defense. I mean, just say something. I want to release you, man. But he wouldn't say a word in his defense as a lamb was led to the slaughter. Or Jesus could have simply avoided Jerusalem. Don't go to Omaha. Don't go to Jerusalem. Just don't go, Lord. Or Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, he says, you know, I could call an angel army 12 heavenly legions right now. But he didn't. In the end, Jesus didn't head away from Jerusalem he headed to Jerusalem Jesus didn't run from the cross Jesus ran to the cross And so the first reason is to fulfill to fulfill this is on your outline to fulfill what to fulfill the prophecies and the predictions in the Bible about his death some of which he made about 30 of which are from the Old Testament You might just read Psalm 22 today. You'll see probably a dozen or so right there. He also went to the cross to finish, to finish, to bring to an end the system of blood sacrifices that had been going on for centuries. These had just been placeholders for the perfect sacrifice, for the ultimate sacrifice. As Hebrews says, chapter 10, verse 4 and 14, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By the cross, the bloody sacrifices had been Reminders, constant reminders of the seriousness and ugliness of sin. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and ended that system. He also went to the cross to forgive. Some of his last words were, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. To forgive, though, in a broader sense, to bridge the gap between God's holiness and between our sinfulness... And finally, he went to the cross to forge. Oh, I like this. He went to the cross to forge, to to forge, to create this new type of people, a cross-shaped people who break cycles of hostility and unforgiveness. You need a people much forgiven To pull this off. That would be us. You need a people who understand how much mercy they have received. That would be us. The Bible says in Colossians 3.13, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You know what forgiveness looks like. Now go forgive others. Break cycles of hate. Break cycles of hostility in your home, in your marriage, in your community, in your church, in the world. Be a people who break those cycles of hate and hostility. And then the word says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled, pulled us together, reconciled us to himself through Christ and what? He gave us a ministry of Reconciliation, bringing people together, making peace, peacemakers. And so we've been unleashed on this redemptive redemptive journey because we are a people of the cross. John Ortberg tells a story about a boy named John Gilbert. John Gilbert had been diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy when he was only five years old. And as that disease took its course and ravaged his body, his disabilities multiplied. He went from being able to run to only being able to walk, and eventually he couldn't even speak. Passed away when he was only 25 years old. But John Gilbert had some good moments in his life. One time he and his mom attended a fundraising auction and from the outset John was drawn to this one particular item that would be on the auction block. It was a basketball. Not just any basketball. But it was a basketball autographed by every single member of the Sacramento Kings. Every player on that team. And that was John's favorite team. And he wanted that basketball badly. And so when the the time came for the bidding to start on that item, John raised his hand... And other people were bidding too, so he he raised his hand a few more times. Eventually, his mom had to hold his hand down because they didn't have money to pay where those bids were going. And that was only the beginning. The bidding kept going. And the price of that basketball shot up and up. The bids far exceeding the actual value of the ball and far out out of proportion, far out of whack with the bids on any of the other items that had come up. And finally, one bidder offered a a price so ridiculously high that all the other hands dropped. And that bidder was pronounced the winner. The bidder walked up and claimed his very expensive basketball. And then instead of walking back to his seat, he walked across the crowded room... And placed the ball in the hands of a young man who would never and could never play basketball. He couldn't even walk. He gave the ball to John Gilbert. And later John would reflect, it took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room and thunderous applause And seeing weeping eyes. And he says to this day, I am amazed. How about you? Have you ever been amazed like that? Have you ever gotten a gift so expensive? So undeserved? No strings attached. Has has such a sacrificial gift ever been offered to you? Of course it has. It's what we've been talking about this morning. It's what Mark talks about, and Matthew, and Luke, and John. They talk about this. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for you. And because of that extravagant gift, you have forgiveness, you have hope, you have eternal life. Jesus has given me, Jesus has given you the greatest gift we have ever received and we can ever hope to receive. And if you want to cross that line of faith this morning and say yes, unwrap that gift, you can do that. You can be baptized in the name of Jesus this morning. Begin your walk with the Lord. Maybe you just need prayers this morning. We're going to have a time where you can pray or you can respond however you need to. Let's be standing together and offer our worship and thanks to the Lord.